African music activists. Suddenly, the eyebrows rise. Suddenly, there's interest. This is now music. This time, Andrew Tracy. If Tracy family didn't do what they did, I doubt very much that South Africa would be where we are right now. Hi, I'm Bedina McConaughey, and welcome to this edition of African Music Activists, the podcast where we meet some of the continent's most important musicians. Important not just because of the music they make, but because of their contribution to keeping traditional African music alive, evolving, and above all, heard. Today's activist is Andrew Tracy. He is one of the 20th and now 21st century's most important figures when it comes to the teaching, study and promotion of traditional African music. He retired as the director of the International Library of African Music, or ILAM, in 2005, but still lives close to it in Makanda, formerly Grahamstown, in South Africa's Eastern Cape. I sat down with him in his living room to find out more about his extraordinary life, which began in Durban in 1936, arriving into a household already full of African music. His father, Hugh Tracy, who founded ILAM in 1954, was a pioneer in the study of it. He would organize traditional Ngoma dance sessions for Zulu dock workers on Sunday afternoons and was often on the radio sharing his knowledge. From the 1920s, Hugh had traveled all over Southern Africa investigating and recording the music of the region, especially his particular passion, the xylophones or timbila of Mozambique's Chopi people. Andrew, did you travel with your father on any of his research? Most unfortunately, I never felt I traveled enough with him. And the traveling I did with him was mostly before the age of 10. So not as, as, as a mature student. I picked up things here and there from him. And I did go on a few minor trips, mainly to Mozambique. I didn't do any Zimbabwe trips with him or much around South Africa. When Andrew came back to South Africa from reading anthropology and languages at Oxford, he followed in his father's footsteps, immersing himself in the study of African musics. His focus was around the Zambezi Valley, and there was a particular reason for that. That was mostly inspired by my father's love for Shona music, which he first came across in Africa when he came in 1921. He came to the Karanga people who are Shona. He never mastered the mbira himself. My father was very keen that I should learn to play it. And so I started to play with the beginner's instrument, which is the karimba. And then I soon found that it was related musically and in the layout of the notes and the way it's made to the big instruments, which are played for the spirits in Zimbabwe. And then I found that there were more of those than I knew about. And basically, I wanted to establish the boundaries of this area and found that it included north of South Africa, uh, three groups there, the, most of Zimbabwe, into Zambia, Malawi, central Mozambique very much. Um, and so I was just searching for what that area was and seeing all the varieties of music. It's all one music family. His passion for and knowledge of the music and the instruments of the area made Andrew an obvious choice to help set up a school in Bulawayo. 
Kwanongoma College of African Music. Kwanongoma was an idea of the person who was at that time the chief electrician of Bulawayo and he was a musician, a flute player, and he wanted to make certain that African music was taught in schools in Zimbabwe. So he wanted someone to teach. So I was employed to find teachers who were available in Bulawayo, and, and so that's what I went up to do. And in the course of doing that, I came across my first really intimate teacher, Jege Tapela. And he went on to become one of the first traditional Mbida teachers they had there. And I went on from that to study most of the other kinds of Mbida that are played in that region. Andrew's brand of activism came from immersing himself completely in traditional African music, playing and building instruments, learning about rhythms and notation, soaking up musical traditions, to the extent that he started to influence them. While his initial focus was the Mbira, there is another instrument he will always be associated with, and for very good reason. Andrew, what was your contribution to the development of the Zim marimba? I think the idea was my first and maybe the most important contribution because I remember meetings at the Zimbabwe Academy of Music with Robert Simpson, who was the, the director and the conductor of the local orchestra and various African teachers, as to what this new college that was being proposed should teach. And I said, let's teach an instrument that is not played in Zimbabwe. The marimba was never played in Zimbabwe, but it's played by many peoples around in the countries around yes. Zim Zimbabwe because the big issue as far as tribal factions are concerned in Zimbabwe is there's mainly two tribes, it's the Ndebele and the Shona, and there's a, plenty of opposition in between them. But if we chose marimba, the, that wouldn't feature. So I, I knew something about the Chopi instrument and a bit about the Shona uh, um, Sena instrument in the Zambezi Valley, a little bit about the Malawian instrument, a little bit about the Zambian instrument, and a little bit about the Venda instrument, all on the fringes of, of Zimbabwe. So that was my suggestion. And one of the engineers at the power station made the first working model using the wood from the cooling tower at the power station. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> which was American redwood. They soon moved off that because it doesn't last long, but it sounds good. I also had input into the way they were tuned. So all those with classical training said, OK, we'll have a datonic, perfectly tuned scale. I said, wait a bit, there's a perfectly good tuning which exists in Zimbabwe, which we could also use. But that was slightly adapted. But basically, it, it remained a well-tempered scale. But the feature which all the classical musicians wanted was they wanted to be able to change key. Now, African music, in essence, never changes no. key but they thought they would be very bored by that. So they wanted to put an F-sharp in the scale, not as an extra note. Oh. Which meant that you could not play the instrument as if it was an African instrument. You always had to be choosing between F and F-sharp. Many of the marimbas that are now played today still have this. People get used to it. 
our suggestion of it much later when we began making them here ourselves was to have the keys replaceable. You could simply lift off the F-sharp and put an F-natural. Andrew was clearly contributing to the evolution of African music, but his activism was about to take a completely different turn. If I had a hammer, I'd a hammer in the morning. Starting in 1961, with his brother Paul and Jeremy Taylor, he co-wrote the songs for two musical reviews that played in Johannesburg and in what was then Rhodesia. These reviews were so successful that they combined the best material from each to create the show Wait a Minim. It became a huge hit, and between 1962 and 1968, Andrew and the cast performed in South Africa, Rhodesia, England, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the US, running for more than a year on Broadway, even appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, one of America's biggest TV audiences. There were over 50 instruments in the show, many of them African, which meant every night they were being seen by audiences who would never have seen anything like them before. Around 1969, after touring the world, Andrew came back to South Africa to continue as an ethnomusicologist working as part of ILAM, which Hugh had founded in 1954 in Rudaput, just outside of Johannesburg. He wrote up his research in the Journal of African Music, also started by his father. While this was his passion, things weren't easy. I think I could say most of my research was self-funded, um, though done on a shoestring with occasional help from ILAM funds, but ILAM funds were not huge. But basics like petrol and, um, and tapes for recording on were supplied, by, mostly by ILAM. And, and the rest of it was really self-funded. And it wasn't just Andrew's research that was struggling for funding. ILAM itself was teetering on the brink. It was in severe danger of closing because it had always existed on foundation grants mm. and grants from business and that was running out. And so we had to find a new home to put ILAM in. And then it was a matter of choosing among different universities. And then my father died when all this was going on. So that was a bit of a stressful time, and we eventually chose this university, Rhodes University. It was the only university I found, actually, that was prepared to take ILAM as a, as a practicing unit and continue publishing the journal and other things which we publish. Others were considered, but Rhodes entirely because of one particular man who was very enthusiastic, that was Jeff Opland, made it easy found it hard to persuade Rhodes that, that Ireland was worth anything. And it actually took me about eight years of being here before they really stopped asking the question, what do they do down there? <laughs> yeah. and, and they thought it was basically an amateur operation, just um, run by musicians, not by musicologists. 
I felt that very strongly and did my best to become a, a musicologist, which I already was because I'd been doing research and writing articles for a long time. ILAM, attracting students from all over Africa and across the globe, is one of the most important African music institutions in the world. It's a living archive, which means that people use the musical, photographic and data holdings for many reasons, including education, community outreach and performance interventions. An important aspect of Andrew's activism is his commitment to nurturing the next generation of musicians who will make the music their own and therefore keep it alive. Immersed as he was in his research, what led him to be a teacher? I think I began teaching because I could see that majority of people here, black and white, knew so little about the structure of African music, how it's put together, what the instruments are, what cross rhythms are, what's the relationship between music and language, what conflict in between parts means, what independence means of parts. All these basic things in African music which which I've learned and practice and notice every time I hear African performance. It's also when I teach white people it's primarily I think quite apart from their general musical interest it's a way of getting the races together to put it simply to help white people to understand African music more and not to have the normal response to it, which is often things like, it's too loud, <laughs> it's too repetitive, yeah. it goes on and on, it's too boring, it's too simple. So I've been trying to understand my own understanding, to a certain extent writing it down on paper, but mostly by doing it and explaining and showing by getting people to do it themselves. How to feel a beat that isn't being played. That's a very basic thing in African music. I learned one of my most valuable lessons from you when you started teaching me to play the Mbira. And you kept on saying, you've got to, you've got to feel it, you've got to feel it. And I, I, it, it was so difficult for me. And when eventually I did feel it, and it wasn't a, a, a quick process at all for me, yes. having been a Western-trained musician, yes. when I felt it, it was such an aha moment. It was, I, it was the whole listening experience changed. Yes, it's how you listen to it and how you let it impinge on, on you and how you feel yourself into it. And if you're aware that there's always two things to listen to, if you play a single melody line to uh, any African musician, they may have some interest in it, but you add another melody line or a background rhythm or something, suddenly the eyebrows rise, suddenly there's interest. This is now music. Andrew has lectured at institutions all over the world, but the majority of his teaching has been in South Africa. While things are far from perfect, 
Access to tertiary education in the country has changed beyond all recognition since Andrew started teaching here in the 70s, when most of his students would have been white. Has the shift in student demographics had an effect on his teaching? It does change it. I'm not so analytical. Certain things I, I keep off. I mean, harmony in general is so rich in African music. You don't have to talk much about that, except for Zimbabweans, because their music has a particularly original and very rich and creative harmonic system. And they're not aware of, of the rules that I've discovered that control that system. I explain that and they think, wow, this is our music and look what it's doing. Um, otherwise, I just point out that African music has rules like any other music, which makes it the, the equivalent on the same level as all other world musics. And, and this is very good for African self-esteem, I think, mm. to know that this music that many people just poo-poo to know that it has established rules, and these rules can be found all over Africa, I think that is important as, as a cultural backbone for political development. Yeah. Perhaps I'm being hopeful there, because in politics you don't get much music, but it's always there in the background somewhere. Have you found any resistance by black African people to the fact that you're a white person teaching them? Yes, I have come across it. Not very much, because I've always found that once they can see that I really love it myself, I play it, I can explain it, and I take the trouble to travel and hear it and record it and teach it, that seems to change people's opinion. It's only on initial contact that there can be this opposition. The worst opposition I remember having was in Zimbabwe during the independence war there, when Mbira players were sometimes very reluctant to talk to me being a white person. At that time, it was considered treacherous yeah. to explain African culture to a white person. I mean, understandably, yeah. Yes, very understandably. Situation. But the teachers I, I knew weren't like that. They were all very delighted to share their music, knowing my attitude to it. Especially the Pondo songs, before he does his lecture and so on, we will sing a song together. And we blend so much. This is another of our African music activists, Dizu Plaikis, founder of the world-famous South African band Amampondo and associate professor of African music performance at UCT. But you find that some of our people, they've got a problem with that. And that thing, you know, I really don't like because, you know, I even one time stood up and said that, you know what, if Tracy family didn't do what they did, I doubt very much that South Africa would be where we are right now without these two people. Far from being negative about a white man teaching African music, Dizu is very clear about the importance of Andrew's involvement in his musical life. I'm what I am because of the people who brought this instrument to me, Father Dagi and Andrew Tracy. He's referring here to Father Dave Dagi, who, with Andrew, helped introduce the marimba to South Africa, an important part of Dizu's early musical learning. But more than that, Andrew was instrumental 
literally in starting Amambondo on their path to musical success. And Tracy, he sponsored Amambondo with Amadinda and the choppy xylophone. 1983, when we were invited to Grahamstown, then Andrew Tracy was there. He was playing with us. We record together the first album. Hey, I admire him so much, you know. A white man got so much knowledge about African music, you know, and all that. And the way he was so open to my band, he even asked us to stay in Grahamstown just for teaching because he could see that, okay, there were some parts that we were lacking when it comes to African music. Sometimes when we play the drums, everything will be always together, you know. So I said, Dizu, I don't like that because now it, it makes no sense. You know, leave gaps. Let the music penetrate truth. Then produce a different... Then I started to understand the music. Then I said that, hey, I wish my God, if I could stay with this man, maybe for a year, I'll be a veteran. Because there was no one who was teaching African music. I'm telling you, Andrew Tracy, you know, Andrew Tracy man is a, is a king. This is Skulumayele, a track from one of Amampondo's earliest albums, taught to Dizu by Andrew in what was then Grahamstown. And when Andrew works with Dizu and Amampondo, or any of the many artists he's collaborated with, what's really important is not their differences, but what they share. And that's their art, their consuming passion for music. Music has always been very important to me, right from the youngest age, from the first instrument I played, which was a little plastic flute. I'd learned the piano for a short time, but soon gave it up. It just didn't please me, and it still doesn't please me. <laughs> it's always in my head. I'm always improvising, composing, um, thinking of tunes. Um, I get earworms, like every musician does. <laughs> But sometimes the earworms are, are more original than most. What I love doing more than anything else is arranging, and I was lucky to have an instrument which is beautiful to arrange for, which was the steel drum. I ran a steel band for almost 40 years. Tried to make it sound African as far as it could with its Western tuning and arranging any music of, of the world. The influence of the Tracy family has not just been in recording, researching, playing and teaching African music. It's also been in instrument making. When Hugh Tracy started ILAM, he knew he would need to generate funding for it. So, at the same time, he founded African Musical Instruments, or AMI, as a way of making some money. And he had a very specific idea about what their first product should be. He followed an idea he'd always had of creating a type of mbira which could be played worldwide, which meant it would have to have a Western scale on. So he then went on experimenting with different models and shapes and sizes, whether it would be hollow. And his first ones were made of aluminium, oddly enough, and then onto wood, and he used bicycle spokes and all sorts <laughs> of materials. And eventually it settled into a, a, sh a shape, which now 
80 years later, we're still making. And then it was only much later in, in terms of the firm, once we moved it here to Grahamstown, that we started to introduce making our own marimbas. Its reputation is such that it is, in my opinion, the best marimba production company in South Africa. Well, thank you very much. I think it's because we take a lot of care and we know about the acoustics of the materials we're using and we tune with great accuracy and care and we use the right wood. I'm very proud of this idea that I first had to choose the marimba as the instrument to develop at Kwanongoma and that it's not only spread all over Zimbabwe but all over South Africa and much further, especially to the west coast of the States, in fact all over the States. And we've come across marimba groups in England and New Zealand and I've heard about them from all over the world actually now. Me too. Playing Zimbabwean music basically. Do you know, I call it a, um, a crossover instrument because it is such um, an accessible instrument for people who are used to listening in a Western way to be able to hear music from a different perspective. Whether it's played around the world is not so important for me. It's fun for anybody who plays it. I think it's particularly important in South Africa because we have almost no instruments to speak of. We have only the simplest instruments, mostly based on harmonics, which are very quiet, not performance instruments, not group instruments. And now we have a country that's full of, of, of marimba groups. And they're teaching Africans in this country to be more general African to play polyrhythms in, in ways that they've always done with, with singing and dancing, but not instrumentally. And now we have many schools and university groups, church groups, social groups, youth groups, playing marimbas. And that's what I think is the, is the most important. What we actually need is more sponsorship of schools because there's still thousands of schools in this country who have no music whatsoever and I think the marimbas are the ideal way of getting people into playing instruments. Why do you think African music is so important? It's primarily important for Africans to realize their own culture in themselves and to use it as a source of identity and history. For at least a hundred years, uh, with the start of the ANC, there's been African spokesmen who said, who are we D to be independent, to have our own politics and, and so on? We should promote our own culture. So my father took this up in a big way and I've been trying to follow him. That's really been my aim, to introduce Africans to their own culture, which most Africans living in towns don't become exposed to, have forgotten, don't use, ignore or despise because African traditional music is played in the countryside by uneducated, illiterate people. That's a negative for educated people, mm. but not anymore, I don't think. I think that is changing rapidly now. At its core, 
Andrew Tracy's life's work has been to bring traditional African music to the ears of as many people as possible. And this was particularly true in his own country, South Africa, where many ears might otherwise have been closed. One thing I'm quite proud of is introducing the sound of traditional music all over South Africa. There was a time when I was the only person doing this. Um, this was long before Johnny Clegg became known, and he was quite limited to Zulu music, really. Um, I, I, I lectured at many of the universities and played instruments, and I did, whenever possible, with two famous musicians of mine. One was Venancia, the Chopi musician from Mozambique. Then the other one was Sitoli, who was a Ndao musician from eastern Zimbabwe, who played the Mbira. And he was a storyteller. And one thing we did was to tell stories. He would tell them phrase by phrase in his own language, and I would translate phrase by phrase. That was brilliant. Unfortunately, he died much too young in one of the Soweto riots. This is one of Andrew's collaborators, Venancium Bandesinia, with the Simbila Orchestra playing Zeno Movement. After a life dedicated to the study, the playing, the recording, the development, the teaching and the evolution of African music, what we would call in this series African music activism, is Andrew optimistic for the future? I think it has a very well-assured future. Africanism in music, let's say, rather than African music as it is today. African music has already had such a huge influence on the world's popular music, and I think it, it will go on. Whether the most interesting, to me, parts of African music will survive in Africa depends a lot on economics and climate change and all these uncontrollable factors. Um, I at least hope that some of the great instruments of Africa will survive, like the chopi xylophone, the, the, uh, the kora, and all the different mbiras. There are some success stories in Zimbabwe. One of the types of mbira has had a huge success around the world, and some of the others are also building up. What do you think your greatest contribution has been? I suppose I'd say, first of all, managing to keep ILAM running all these years, and apart from that, certain discoveries in African music um, which had an influence on, on people in the countries involved, which is the Zambezi Valley area, and on academic musicologists. And I think encouraging more people in Southern Africa to think of African music as being something valuable and important and interesting. Thank you for listening to this edition of African Music Activists. To find the other podcasts in this series and to subscribe for free, search for African Music Activists wherever you get your podcasts. This is an ILAM production in association with the Mellon Foundation's Unsettling Paradigms Multi-University Project and with further support from the Africa Multiple Cluster of Excellence at the University of Bayreuth, funded by DFG, the German Research Foundation.
Nakaliakai 